Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. While the Yiddish Book Center's building is closed and staff are working remotely from home, this episode is being recorded from my home in the hills of western Massachusetts. Today I'm visiting with Melissa Martins Yeverbaum, the Executive Director of the Council of American Jewish Museums. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's great to be here. Thank you. And, and, and you are joining me remotely from what, what state? I am joining you from the heart of Brooklyn in Crown Heights in New York City. And it's a, um, an anxious but meaningful time to be uh, recording with you. Um, well, I've been really looking forward to this conversation, um, and uh, it's it's nice to have a, a distraction, as it were, today. Um, and for our listeners, the topic today will be all things Mahjong, unless we deviate a little bit, Melissa. So, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, let's start a little bit, if we can, with the backstory. I know um, we, we've known each other for many years now um, through the affiliation with CAJUM, the Council of American Jewish Museums. Um, and this year we were chatting briefly at the opening reception, and I'm not sure how it dipped into the conversation, but I realized that you have had a long association with uh, telling the story of Mahjan, and I've been wanting to do a podcast about Mahjan and never knew that you were the source for this. So um, delighted to be able to throw some questions at you. So um, can you tell me a little bit about how you came to Mahjan? Yeah, so uh, in 2010, I was the curator at Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust in New York City. And at the time, uh, the museum's third floor was a space for temporary exhibitions that explored different aspects of Jewish heritage and life. And the smallest gallery on the third floor there is this beautiful space called the Rotunda, which is a six-sided gallery with a skylight. It's a tall room, but it's small. It's only about 1,000 square feet, maybe 900 square feet. And it was going to be empty for the spring and summer season. And the staff and I were speaking and we said, well, what, should, what can we do? To, what can we put in there fairly quickly that would really bring the space to life and that hasn't been done before? And I think I said kind of as an aside, well, we could put a Mahjong table in there and we could let people play Mahjong. And everybody kind of lit up and said, has there ever been an exhibit about Mahjong? And we realized that in the discourse around American Jewish history, that uh, Mahjong is certainly understood as an American Jewish uh, a piece of, of history and of womanhood, and that there was very, very little written about it at the time, and certainly no, um, no exhibition of recent memory. So we decided to create um, uh, America's first uh, standout exhibit on the history of Mahjong, um, like I said, there was almost no scholarship. We talked to this amazing designer, Abbott Miller, who's at Pentagram, and he uh, immediately embraced the topic. And so Pentagram agreed to be the design firm, which brought a really um, high, highly stylized design framework to the topic. And I think that's also in dialogue with the appeal of Mahjong because it's a highly aesthetic game. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit. And then I dove into the research. And as I started doing newspaper research, I realized that there was, 
I always understood Mahjong as kind of a classic pairing for the Catskills and Miami Beach and the post-war era and um, the Jewish suburbs and, and Brooklyn and the boroughs. And what I realized is that its first heyday in America was in the 1920s, which was absolutely shocking. I had no idea that it was really in the 1920s that Mahjong first became an American phenomenon. So it, it is a game that I think resonates in some, in some parts of the mind with all of us. I mean, I remember what I think was Mahjong games that my grandparents used to play when we were out at the Atlantic Beach Club in New York. Um, uh, and I have both, uh, I have two sets of theirs. Um, did you, and I had never played until recently. So when, when you suggested the Mahjong table, had yeah. you played before? You know, I had tried to learn a few years earlier. I had assembled some of my friends when I was about 35 years old and decided that we should start to learn to play this. But what I hadn't understood at the time, and people who play Mahjong will be giggling at this, is that um, you don't just sit down and start playing in one day. And we had ordered Chinese food and got some bottles of wine. And this was the exact opposite um, recipe right. for learning to play Mahjong because um, being tired and having a full stomach is not gonna get you very far in the game. And um, so I kind of, I gave up after that first try, but then when we had the opportunity to mount this exhibition in 2010, I was really forced to learn. And I, I went on an amazing journey through the world of Mahjong at the time. Um, I, there is a, a Mahjong group on the Upper East Side of New York that's run by someone named Linda. And it's amazing. There's a closed restaurant that is closed to the public, I believe on Mondays. And it closes down so this group of Mahjong players can come. And it has um, anywhere from about 50 people to 200 people on every Monday. And I went there to learn about the game and the culture of Mahjong. And I was seated at the beginner's table. And the beginner's table was like, it, you would think you were at like a national tournament or something. It was unbelievable how skilled and dedicated the players were. And I realized that there was this whole world of people, hundreds of thousands of people around just America playing the game of Mahjong. And it's just something that I, I hadn't known about and was so eager to unlock and reveal for the general public. It's so funny to hear this because it so parallels my introduction. I had a friend here in Western Massachusetts um, and she found her grandmother's Mahjong set. So we all tried to get together. Same thing. Oh, we'll do dinner. We'll throw it out on the table. We'll have some wine. <laughs> hopeless, hopeless. And then many, many, many years later, um, a wonderful friend, Norin, who's always championing something or other, suggested that wouldn't it be fun to learn Mahjong? And she found a local teacher here and we would meet weekly to get these lessons. And it's a really hard game to learn, and it does take serious attention. Um, there's a social aspect to it as well. But then you begin, as you do, to discover that there are these groups everywhere playing this, and it's right. quite a phenomenon. And each one has a slightly different character to it. Is that safe to say? Yeah, and that actually really brings us to the, the history, because one of the maddening realities of Mahjong is that there are, in a way, there are rules, 
but then there are house rules for whatever group you play with. And then there's variation within that. And so that's always been one of the key storylines of Mahjong is that it evolved out of a 19th century Chinese um, card games and domino games. And a lot of people think that it's much older than that because part of the original uh, marketing of the game was to say it was the game of Confucius or that it was played in the pyramids or even that Noah played it on the ark. So it's kind of cultural patina and its aesthetics have always pointed to a distant past, but it was um, most likely an evolution of 19th century Chinese card um, and domino games. Um, Americans would have first encountered it at World's Fairs. We think it's le quite likely that um, it was on display at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893 in the Anthropological Building. Um, the first sets entered museum collections such as Brooklyn Museum and the uh, American Museum of Natural History in the 1890s. So it was collected as a curiosity anthropology object. And then by the time uh, the 1920s came, um, its introduction to America probably came in several layers, but one of the main characters would have been Joseph Babcock, who was working for an oil company in China. And he and his wife learned the game, and he aligned himself with um, something that became called the Mahjong Sales Company of America in California. He patented the name in 1923, and they started to mass produce sets. And um, one of the, the, the original games, you could still buy some of these early games on eBay. You'll see that the rules don't line up with what we would expect today if you're used to something like the National Mahjong League card, that um, it was much simpler. Uh, it was based on the Chinese style of game, but it used English numerals on the tiles and it had some set hands, but it wasn't the, what we're used to today on the cards. So um, it kept, uh, because everyone had so much different variation that there became a need that if anyone wanted to ever play with anyone besides their regular three other people, that if you sat at a table, no one would know what rules were, were being followed. So that, um, uh, created the need for standardization of the rules, which created the National Mahjong League in 1937. So um, it was really in that 1937 moment that the rules became standardized um, for at least a large portion of American culture. And interestingly, all of the founders of National Mahjong League that showed up at the inaugural meeting were Jewish women. So this segues beautifully into a this question that has plagued me ever since I started <laughs> playing the game. Well, there's two things. One, I love that you're right. Um, we have major debates on the rules and everybody's interpretations of it um, sure. <laughs> while, while we're playing. Um, but the card, let's talk a little bit about the card. Um, each year, the National Mahjong Association issues the authoritative card which changes and their hands um so maybe speak a little bit about this and also if you have any insights i've always pictured this group meeting in some undisclosed location and working on the next year's card which is we're always hopeful that the next year's card is going to be better than the current card and that suddenly <laughs> we're going to have this like ability to win every game 
but what's the whole process and et cetera? Can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, yeah. I um, I could talk about it uh, broadly that ever since the League was formed in 1937, their primary purpose was to standardize the rules and what they learned by selling the cards, even though it was only for a few dollars, I mean, they're still very inexpensive cards, but at the time they were um, even less expensive, is that the multiplier effect went into full swing, that what had already become associated with Jewish women's culture, and we could talk about that too, um, then multiplied around the country because of course they told two friends and they told two friends and so on. And so a lot of these women that were um, philanthropically inclined might have sold them to their synagogue sisterhoods or to their Hadassah chapters or um, at local hospitals or libraries. And so the extent to which um, it became an e even more of a Jewish game um, uh, was magnified and there were so many funds realized from the sale of the cards that the National Mahjan League by its second year declared a, another purpose, which was a philanthropic one. So what had started off as kind of a group to standardize the rules uh, very quickly in its history turned into a philanthropic organization. So the League, National Mahjan League, um, which is based in New York City, has two purposes, both of those purposes, to keep up with the card and to create interesting new cards each year and to serve charities um, that serve women and children. So um, wow. they're always functioning on both of those fronts. And indeed, there is a committee that um, meets every year. I believe they start meeting in the fall. And they go to the National Mahjong League office and they play and play and play and play. And these are people that really know the game and understand it and know the years of history of cards. Um, it's usually people that have been playing for a long time, although there's, um, they try to diversify the group that is um, testing out the new hands. And the league offices also have a service that a lot of people probably don't know of, that if you have an antique Mahjong set and have lost one tile, you know you have to find a tile that blends in perfectly. And the National Mahjong League has a kind of archive of tiles from different sets around the world. So you can call and describe the type of tile you need and they will try to match one up with your set. So there's all these functions of the league and in the old office, um, they've changed location. The old Uptown office, which was run for years by Ruth Unger, who uh, ran the league and um, the secretary, Marilyn, answered the phone and they were both there for decades. And for those of you who remember calling the old office, maybe there's some people listening who remember you'd call and Marilyn would always answer and say, National Mahjong League, can I help you? And Marilyn only used a typewriter. She didn't use a computer. So when you call into the league, um, this was true as of, as of seven years ago, you would hear Marilyn's voice, you would hear the click, clack, 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 clack of the typewriter. You might hear the click, clack, clack, clack of the tiles of people playing in the background and of the person working in the archive room pulling uh, historic tiles for people's sets. So it's like something out of Mad Men, really. I mean, it's like, it was this incredible um, step back in time of this whole world of Mahjong. And this was the group that was still, you know, making a lot of the system run in America. It's amazing. 
It's a great story. I I was trying to search out somebody who could answer this question for the podcast several years ago. And so I contacted the association in New York and never really got a a, a reply, maybe because I needed to have a type, uh, typed reply. <laughs> but I always imagined going to their offices um, and finding it like, you know, a 1950s detective, uh, yeah, you yeah. know, one of those buildings with the wire and the glass and National Mahjong knocking on the door, <laughs> <laughs> getting entry. Um, it's wonderful that they do also philanthropic. Uh, it's great. Yeah, um, yep. a huge part of their operations. So let's talk about women in the game. I mean, it really does seem that it is mostly women. Am I misguided in that? No, I think, yeah, I'll tell you what what my imagination has put together based on um, my newspaper research and um, also what I've heard since I got interested in the history of the game, that um, when Mahjong was introduced, it wasn't introduced exclusively as a women's game. As many people know, um, in China, the game is played by both men and women. And so it was marketed as such here. And in the Library of Congress, there were some great images. Um, There was a magazine called um, Auction Bridge and Mahjong. And um, it uh, kind of reported on the latest in Bridge, and then it added Mahjong as, as a secondary game. And there were definitely sketches and illustrations of men and women playing together. Um, there was always an air of romance around the game, that um, it being an exotic game, that it coming from far away, and like I said, um, in the imagination from far back in time, Um, that it might transport you to another world through playing the game through the sensory aspects. And so there was a certain romance associated with it. And I remember seeing this one illustration of these where someone imagined two people falling in love over the Mahjong table. Um, It also, though, became a women's game. I think those um, women that were um, initial players had time on their hands. Some were certainly of the leisure class and upper classes, not everyone, but certainly that was a good percentage. Um, There's a famous photograph by Steichen that shows a woman's hands and their perfect hands with perfect skin and beautiful rings and they're posed over Mahjong tiles. So this was like a fine art photograph representing kind of the high classedness of the game. And I remember seeing this great uh, quote in the New York Times that said, it's it's certainly an established um, skill of the um, leisure class and that before playing a game of Mahjong, it might serve women well to practice posing their hands in front of the tiles so that way they could be seen to best advantage. And it's just a hilarious image that the idea that Mahjong was really a backdrop to show the gracefulness of your hands and your leisure class. Um, Of course, though, Mahjong, um, soon after its introduction around 1923 in America, as it gained very fast popularity, um, sets, affordable sets were produced very quickly. Um, So in addition to getting the more expensive sets that were imported and made in China, there were sets made out of cardboard or paper. Um, So it trickled down to everybody and it became a, a mass phenomenon. And um, women, though, um, who might have had time on their hands or might have been um, congregating in places like the Catskills while the men were working in the city, um, 
would have possibly taken the opportunity to play Mahjong, which for those who play know uh, games of Mahjong can last for many, many hours. And also um, women were very philanthropically organized. So for those that were running fundraisers, even before the creation of the National Mahjong League, Mahjong became very associated with good causes and philanthropy. So I think for lots of those reasons, it became a women's game and um, not particular at first in the 1920s to Jewish women, although they um, side by side with other Americans did play. It was really in the 1930s and 40s that it was known to be especially popular with Jewish women. And you can't, the group I play with, we don't bet on the, um, on the games, mm-hmm. but I know that there are groups that obviously do. Um, I, I have a friend whose mother has a like, long-standing group in, um, I think it's Canada, and they put all of the earnings into a kitty, and then at the end of the year, they take a girls' weekend. They went to Las Vegas to hear Neil Diamond. Uh, are there any other stories like that of um, groups that do similar things? Absolutely. I hear those stories all the time about people here in New York. They save up the kitty, and then they go see a Broadway show. Um, so I, I think that's very likely. And the gambling aspect of Mahjong has always been, there are several things about the game that have always made it stir up a dialogue around class. Um, That has always been a conversation that has revolved around Mahjong from um, the time it was first introduced and it was given the name Mahjong here. it, uh, that was not the only draft name that was out there. Um, other um, names by um, com- game companies in America included Ma Chen, Pan Wu, Pei Lin, Pan Chao. And the Pan Chao company um, tried to use its own name to dissuade customers from the competition. They said the high-class Chinese frown upon Mahjong the coolie gambling game regarding it as dangerous as opium for their ignorant citizens and like opium, a blemish on the fame of a great nation. So the whole idea was Mahjong high class or low class has been part of the conversation of this game for more than a hundred years. And I still hear it today. If people are like, oh, you know, my grandmother and her friends are just sitting around playing Mahjong or it's, it's used as a marker. And it's very interesting because um, it has the connotation of gambling with it. And that connotation was sometimes used in the press. Um, you would see that police would go and raid a game in Chinatown of Mahjong, but they weren't going to raid a, a game of Mahjong at you know Temple Emmanuel uptown at the you know Hadassah meeting. So it's very interesting that it's um, kind of used in that way, and the marketing surrounding the game, kind of the the exotic aspects of it. It was kind of a a nod and a wink to um, American non Chinese consumers to say you all know the stereotypes we're talking about. Um, just same thing if you looked at um, Chinese menus from Chinese restaurants in the 1920s. It was um, it used stereotypes to be both appealing and to kind of um, let the consumer feel that they were on the other side of the American success story. And so it's always had that who's in and who's out um, aspect to it that has now kind of blended away from our imagination in a lot of ways, but it has always been part of the conversation. Wow. Um, 
So quick last question for you. Um, and right now, are there any ways to play virtually that you know of? Yeah, there are definitely online versions of the game of Mahjong. I would say I haven't, I, you know, I have not um, dove into them um, recently, but it's very hard to replicate the experience of Mahjong online in that um, it's, it's both in the way, the pace of the game and the action of the game. Um, and also that Mahjong is inherently social and it's a sensory game. One of the most appealing aspects, I think, that distinguishes it from cards and, and rummy um, is that the clacking of the tiles, the verbalization of, um, of, of the, what you're, you're getting and what tiles you're putting down on the table, um, the associations. So I think it's really hard to replicate that, but there are successful versions of the game online, even if it doesn't directly replicate the experience of playing the game. But um, because the game is basically a four-person game, I hope right now, while a lot of people are home, um, while we're all um, really doing our part to stay home during the coronavirus uh, crisis, that Mahjong might be something that, that families can learn to play, that if you're with four people in the house um, or going on a family vacation and other happier times, that this might be a, a renaissance for Mahjong. It might be a time to sit down and take that time to learn the game. I was um, looking through some of my um, old quotes um, that I had written about, and during the war years in World War II, um, the, the anxieties of the war really brought Americans together, um, looking for togetherness and distraction. And um, this would certainly be applicable today. And one of the, the poems that was written then and, and printed was, um, it, it said, if to the radio I would turn for amusement before I retire, out would come tales of horror and death of bombings and cities of fire. Then I learned the game of Mahjong, you wouldn't know me at all, I'm relaxed and normal, and in my dreams, there are 10 flowers in every wall. So I think that Mahjong has always served as a comfort, as a pointer to the past and the present. Um, it reminds us of people around the world, and it also reminds us of our Jewish American heritage. Melissa, thank you so much. Um, you share a great story, a great history, and speak to all that we can be inspired by. Um, so thanks again for taking the time to, to join me today from our remote locations. Um, I look forward to uh, a future game of Mahjong with you. Absolutely. Take care. All right. Yep, be well. Thanks again. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. For more on Yiddish and Jewish culture, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. Today's podcast was coordinated by Sam Brivik and produced by Sarah Blakefeld. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon. Mm-hmm.